Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, uh, let me just start with this story. I, I, I love this story. So it's, um, it's um, from Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. And I, I, I feel like this like, just uh, captures so much about um, the human condition, about our life in this world. So, so it's a very simple story. The, the story goes that, that there's this beautiful wrapped box, like this like, luxury item, you know. And someone sees it and starts running after it. And he's running through the streets and it just keeps on getting ahead of him. Whatever it is, there's like a crowd and the, and the box keeps on getting pushed forward and everything like that. And he's hustling and bustling through all this throng. And he finally, finally, after amazing expensive effort, is able to get hold of the box. And he opens up the box and there's nothing in it. <clears throat> so, so I think that, unfortunately, that's, um, that's kind of like if you, if you want to make a... a a two-minute short movie about kind of like the trap of 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 the, of the civilization that we're, we're we're living in right now. That that, that that's a, that's as good a one as ever. You know, it's just it's just things have this um this this amazing uh, kind of sparkle to it, and then some people never catch it, and then other people catch it, and then it's just sort of like. What was I? What was I expending my entire life for? What was I doing? What was I doing? Um, I'll tell you something. Uh, something really beautiful. It's a, it's a Torah from the from the from the Kutzker Rebbe, and it's a it's a spin uh, on something that we we sing every Friday night. We sing Eishes um, Chayil, which is the Zohar says Eishes Chayil was. Um, Avraham Avinu's eulogy to, to his holy wife, Sarah. Um, but it, it sort of um, describes kind of like it's, it's in praise of women, uh, just, uh, just, just how awesome women are, basically. That's kind of like the content of it. But um, there's, there's a particular line in here, which, which is really kind of goes with the story that I just told you. It says... At the very end, the last, the, the second to last verse, it goes through the um, the alphabet, the olive base. It says "Sheker Achein Vehevel Hayofi." So that's translated as um, "False is grace, and vain is beauty." Um, mean, meaning to say that uh, superficiality is 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 you know has its limitations, but it goes on that 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 a woman who who has uh, awe of God, she should be praised. Okay, so that's that's the straightforward um, way to read it. Now listen to what the Kutzker Rebbe says. Sheker hachein. Chein means grace, like it has a certain charm to it. So he says in a place where sheker, which means lies, in a place where sheker has chein. In other words, in a society where falsehood has this like glamorous quality to it. And Hevel, which means vanity or worthlessness, is Yofi, is beautiful. <laughs> Can you imagine? I have the chills. Like, um, do the words Los Angeles come to mind? <laughs> I don't want to be down on the city. There are a lot of great things here. But, but anyway, this is, this is devastating as far as I'm concerned. Sheker hachin, where lies have a beautiful charm and hevel, meaninglessness, is considered beautiful. 
in a place like that, a woman who actually has awe of God, she's to be praised. So, because, because that's, that's the anchor. That's, that's, that's kind of what, 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 what keeps everything real. So, so we, we have a, a big problem. And, and this problem has been with us in different forms throughout history. I want to give you sort of the, basically what we call it today is, is big data. That, that's, that's the shorthand for it. And there are lots of industries surrounding big data. Um, one of the ways that, you know why Facebook and Google are, are mega companies and Amazon and even Netflix? Um, one of the core reasons is besides the, the um, obvious service that they, they offer, they're, they're taking huge storehouses of data about you and they're mining them and they're classifying them and they're making them into sort of like bite-sized um, commercial usable components for companies all around the world. So, so in other words, the biggest companies in the entire world today are the ones who are dealing successfully on a commercial basis with big data. So that's just one application of big data. Big data, um, in its broader, sort of maybe for you and me, more relevant context, big data means um, the fact that I am carrying, you know, we call it an iPhone. We call it a, a phone, which is kind of a joke that we call it a phone because it's basically a supercomputer. We're basically all, we've gotten, you know, we're, you know, when I was when I was growing up, they'd have cartoons, and they talk about the year two thousand, which is hilarious since we're in the year two thousand nineteen right now. But the year two thousand was like this sort of like sci-fi term. It was like shorthand for like the future. And actually, just as a total aside, one of my favorite sort of like subgenres of art is um, futuristic uh, visions from the nineteen fifties. Like, if you look at the 1950s, like, flying cars and these, like, big arcing buildings and things like that, it's like this great style. Um, anyway, so the year 2000 was shorthand for all that. But, but if, one of the things that you talk about was, was like, supercomputers in everyone's pocket. <laughs> See, here, here's one of the things that, I remember reading this, I'm sure there's some... Um, someone's famous name attached to this idea. I, I, I don't know it, but here's a mistake that, that people make when they, when they um, imagine the future. They think when a new technology comes in, all the old stuff disappears. See, that's not what happens. Society transforms, but society transforms in a more surprising, less intuitive way. Like once a better product comes in, or a more superior technology comes in, all the old stuff doesn't just, like, disappear. So, in other words, you have this illusion of continuity, like you've never really entered the future. But you have entered the future. It's just you're looking around and you're seeing so much familiar stuff, you think things sort of haven't changed, but they really, really have changed. Anyway, it's just an aside. It's just an aside. But, um, but the point is, back to big data, we're all carrying around these supercomputers in our pocket, which is ridiculously futuristic. Like, we are in that future, right? 
And we have the ability in in seconds, in, in, it just, it's just contingent on how fast you can type in the question. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but if you actually look on the Google page, it will tell you in how many hundredths of seconds it has called up, you know, the thousands or sometimes millions of links. It's, it's insane. It's insane. So, so it's only contingent on how fast you can type, not how fast the data can be processed. But, but here's the point. The point is, is that in milliseconds, the entire history of human civilization is available to you wherever you go, 24-7. Pretty much every thought is available to you, like right away. That's big data. But here's the problem. What do, you, what, what do you do with it? Because what happens is, is that when you have so much information, it's very unclear how to prioritize it. It becomes very unclear what's more important than something else. And so you just chase after whatever your interest in the moment is. But that's not, that's not a good barometer for how to live our lives. We're just following our interests as opposed to leading our best life. There's a very big difference there. And then sometimes the things that are most core to our reality, to living our best life, seem so obvious that something kicks in where we go, I know that already. <laughs> and then we push it, to the, push it to the side and then we forget it. <laughs> and then it becomes the least important thing to us. Do you understand how whacked out that is? Let me just say that again. The most important things to us, we understand, we know intuitively. But then because we're swimming through all this data, we go, wait, I already know that. We push it aside and then we forget those things which are the core values in our life, which are the things that are most important to us. And we start chasing after that box. And then if we're among the few who are lucky enough to open it and see that there's nothing there, right? It's just like it's all dead ends. It's dead ends. It's dead ends. So how do you get out of the dead end trap? So, so let me just show you how just a variation of how we've sort of lived in the, with this question in the Jewish world, in the Torah world. Um, and I heard this from Rabbi Beryl Wine. I thought it was just a great observation, just sort of a macro view of Jewish uh, kind of Torah, Torah scholarship over, over the millennia. What, what happens is, is that you, we've got these very basic concepts which we're going to go into soon, like because you know when you hear about all this big data, I want to hear. Okay, so then tell me what's the most important thing, right? I want to hear what's the most important thing. Okay, we'll get to it. <laughs> so, so, so what happens is we start out with these foundational thoughts, the most important thing, and then over the generations, like geniuses upon geniuses, like what's so unique about the Jewish people and about Torah. 
And you should just understand this just on an academic level. This is not parochial or sort of like, hey, rah, go home team. That's not, this is just an objective statement about something amazing that's Jewish, which is that, you see, virtually all scientific disciplines at a certain point change paradigms. Um, meaning to say, like, for instance, in, in, the middle, in the Middle Ages, chemistry was really fixated on a certain problem, um, which was how can, like, everyone wanted gold. Like, to this day, everyone wants gold. Well, what if I had, like, some stone, and they called it the philosopher's stone. What if I had some stone that had sort of like this very interesting sort of like, you know, makeup to it, where if I touched any other material, it would sort of like trigger this effect in that, in that say, piece of iron, where it would transform it into gold. Like I could make a chemical reaction. I had some special stone that I could make up, and this was called alchemy. Alchemists were trying to figure out what substance can I cause that would touch another thing and trigger the atoms in there to reform as gold. Now, this, we, like, alchemists, these are sort of like, we, we imagine people with conical hats who are, have bubbling vials of, like, liquid, and they were like, oh, idiots, right? No, these were the geniuses of their day. They were geniuses. They were like, you know, if don't, if like, if they took this SATs, these are all the people going to Harvard, Yale, MIT today, Stanford, this, all the alchemists. They were super geniuses, but, but they were working in a failed paradigm. In other words, the, the goal that they were striving for was scientifically inaccurate. And at a certain point, history evolves and they go, no, let's switch paradigms. So the human intelligence doesn't change. It's just the paradigms change. <coughs> but do you know what happens then? All of their work, and again, we have to really be very respectful of their level of intelligence. All of their work gets thrown out the window. Okay? Now that's happened in biology. That's happened in all sorts of different disciplines over the years. You know what it hasn't happened in? Torah study. It hasn't happened in Torah study. That means that the same mitzvahs, the same book of Torah, which is like, I'm holding up a book of Torah now, right? This, is, this includes a lot of English commentary. This includes like a lot of other stuff, maps and charts. It's pretty small. Like if you were to actually think how long the Torah actually is, it's pretty small. So you've got to understand that we've had generations of geniuses on the level of Einstein, Freud, Marx, who are all Jewish, right? In every generation, doing one thing, working on Torah. <laughs> every generation. And the paradigm never changed. That means that since the beginning of time, we've had geniuses working on the work of geniuses, working on the work of geniuses, working on the work of geniuses. And all of the paradigms are intact, which means that you can open up, like one of the glorious things, it's like a, it's like a schematic of a time machine, okay? A page of Talmud is like, it's, it's a blueprint for a time machine. Why? 
because you have all these conversations going on on the page from the second century, arguing with the 11th century, this, the, the 17th century is defending the second century against the 11th century. <laughs> it's this amazing, amazing, amazing construct because all of the opinions are still relevant. They're still relevant. So what happens is, again, back to this idea of big data, we start with these foundational ideas, and then they get built upon for generations. So much so that everyone assumes for the longest time that everybody knows these foundational ideas. But then you know what happens? People forget the foundational ideas. (laughs) And they get buried under the explanations and the explanations of the explanations of the explanations of the explanations of the the foundational ideas. And then every several hundred years, someone comes along and condenses it like accordions it back to the foundational ideas again. And then people get really excited and they start explaining and re-explaining the foundational ideas again until they're completely forgotten again. So we live in a generation where the most foundational thoughts have been completely buried over and completely forgotten. See, it used to be if you could like show the tip of 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 the mountain, right? You were the greatest in the world. Now it's sort of like you just have to point to someone and say, look, there's a mountain. There's a mountain. So what's the mountain? What's the mountain? What is the mountain? The mountain is Ein Od Milvada. Nothing exists other than God. Nothing exists other than God. God. Or as Rabbi Green once said, God is the only thing going on in the universe. 24-7. God is the only thing going on in the universe. God is the only reality. God is reality. You know, one of, one of, one of sort of like, it's, it's hilarious and, and heartbreaking at the same time, is that people walk around wondering, is God here? Is there a God? Do you know what the greatest proof that there's a God is? The fact that you're here. <laughs> because the only reason why you're here is because God's here. Because God created you and God keeps you going. And yet people wonder, is there a God? Is there a God? Well, let me ask you a better question. Is there a you? If there's a you, for sure there's a God. The bigger question is, is there a you? <laughs> That's the more intelligent question. <laughs> And there is a you. And there is a God. And there is a you because there is a God. You see, the fact that God is the only thing, the only thing. That's what, by the way, if you want to know what it means when we say, Shema Yisrael, Shem Elokeinu, Shem Echad. If you want to know what those words mean, which are sort of like our foundational, sort of like, 
that's it. That's sort of Judaism in a nutshell. That, that's what that means, that God is one. That means that nothing exists other than God. That's what that means, by the way. Now, that's so important for so many reasons. Because, you know, the, the, uh, the Gomorrah gives a, this sort of like, this amazing kind of, I don't know if it's a parable, if it really happened, I don't, I don't even know, it doesn't matter. But it's so good. Basically, there was a ship with some sailors on it, and they saw this island in the in the middle of the ocean, and they were like, "Wow, you know, let's you know, we've been on this ship. Let's go to this island, and um, we'll have like a, a picnic on this island." So they 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 get off the ship, and I guess they take a little boat to this island, and now they're on this island, and now they they want to cook, they want to barbecue, you know, something, some food, I guess. So they. They, they, they start, um, they, they make a fire and they're sitting around and what happens is, is that what they didn't realize was that they were on the back of a whale and that the whale was poking through the water and to them it looked like an island. And when the whale felt the heat of the fire, it threw everyone off. And I don't know what happened to them. They drowned, they didn't drown, I don't know. But but I really, I think that's such a compelling, amazing visual because so many of us decide that the material universe, our lives, our bodies, our possessions, whatever it is, is ours and we're on rock-solid foundation. And we're just those people on the back of the whale. They're going to get tossed. You know, I know someone, um, and I love this guy. And I'm, not, I'm not saying anything bad, chas v'shalom. I, I genuinely love this person. He's really, just take my word for it, he's one of the top minds in the world. Okay? And I don't want to go into any details. But believe me when I tell you, he's one of the top minds in the world. And, and he's a very good person and very sincere. And he's so, he's so uh, convinced that there isn't a God. He's, he's so convinced. There's no God. We have no free will. And I haven't had this conversation with him. I don't know if I ever will. But the thing is, is that after 120, right? After, our, after we leave this world, he's going to find out whether he was right or not. <laughs> and we say he's wrong. And it just seems strange to me that someone who's so smart would not allow for for I would say the the certainty <laughs> he he might use the word 
slim probability, <laughs> I don't know what language he would use, that he was completely off. So Rabbi Shlomo Katz was here over Shabbos, and he shared with some, uh, a thought with us from Rabbi Kluger, someone that he's learning with. And um, he talked about the, the, the necessity or the, 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 just, just, the, just how it will improve your life if you can add the word yet, Y-E-T, if you can add the word yet to all sorts of definitive statements that you're making in your life. So, for instance, he said, look, I'm going to give you a group of statements. Look how all of these things transform. I don't know God, right? I don't believe in God. I'm not serving God. I, 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 I don't love my wife. I don't love my kids. Like, like, from this place of heartbreak, of brokenness. He goes, but what if you add the word yet to all those statements? I don't know God yet. <laughs> you know? I don't love my kids yet. Right? I haven't done what I'm supposed to do in this lifetime. Yet. The, 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 the amazing thing that this word yet does, bless you, is that for someone who's broken and who's down at the bottom and who, I guess, in their sense, is legitimately not at that place, it gives them hope. You add the word yet, and all of a sudden you have hope that maybe I can still get there. But the greatness of this, and the reason why I really am happy to share it, is, is because let's say you actually are loving your kids, or you are loving your wife, or you are like, or you do know God, say. But if you add the word yet, then what you've done is you've built in a level of striving <laughs> that is absolutely necessary if you want to be a, a, what we would call an emistika yid, a real Jew. Because we never arrive. That, that's part of the aspect that, of, of the infinity of God. Is, and and that's, that's, that's part of the joy of being alive is that it's not a static dynamic. It's complete, it's a dynamic dynamic, right? And because of God's infinite, infinity, because we're not there yet, even if you're really good at it. So now I want to build on that and let's go even deeper. So, so he said this over. Rabbi Katz said this over in the name of Rav Yitzchak Ginsburg, who's, who's really, you talk about like supercomputers. He's really one of the absolute top, top minds in, in the Torah world. So one of the coolest things in, in Torah, this is, this is like a great teaching, and then it gets even deeper, okay? When, when the, the, the turning point in, in uh, Moshe's, I, I said a brook on this already. The turning point in, in Moshe's life is the burning bush, right? And just so you can appreciate how cool the burning bush is, 
Like a lot of times when people picture the burning bush, they, okay, so there's like a bush that's on fire, right? But it didn't like completely burn out yet. That's what kind of most people think. But that's, that's not it. It's, it's much better than that. It's a, a bush where all the leaves are beautifully green and it's on fire. <laughs> like the green leaves, that's the key to that visual. Right? The leaves are remaining green as the entire construct is in, engulfed in flames. That, that's the thing, okay? So, so, so God did that to get Moshe's attention. And by the way, you want to hear something wild? I saw this, um, I heard this in the name of the Kutzka Rebbe. He said, many people saw it and walked by it. Gives me the chills. Moshe is the only one who stopped. That's something? That's something? That's awesome. That's awesome. So Moshe sees it, and Moshe comes and he stops. And you know, I, how can I not tell you this other Torah on the way to the Torah I wanted to tell you? So <laughs> this I heard from the um, from Rabbi uh, Matisyahu Solomon, who was the Meshkiach Olavashon at the Lakewood Yeshiva. So, so, so there's a question. You may have had this question, or it may have bothered you, but you weren't able to quite articulate what the question was. Everybody knows Moshe comes and then and gets close, and then Hashem says, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. So you may have had the question, which is, why didn't God tell him to take off his shoes before he got on the holy ground? Right? Like, why wait till Moshe had done something wrong, so to speak, which is stand on holy ground in his shoes, and then tell him, oh, no, 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 take, take off your shoes. So listen to what Rabbi Solomon says, something unbelievable. He said, it wasn't holy ground until Moshe stood on it. In other words, Moshe made it holy because Moshe wanted to investigate the truth of reality. Other people walked by this. Moshe was like, what's going on? I got to know more. I got to know more. Like, maybe this is going to help me know the truth of existence. Live my life better. I want to know more. That energy is what transformed the ground into holy ground. And then Hashem says, okay, now take off your shoes. Okay, now, we, now we're up to the point. So this is from Rabbi Ginsburg. So, so I'm going to read you actually from the thing. If you, if you want to see it inside ever, it's in Sefer Shmos, the book of Exodus, uh, chapter, two, chapter 3, uh, verse 5. Okay, so I'm reading. So this is Hashem. Hashem says, Do not come closer here. Remove your shoes from your feet. And then it continues, For the place that you stand is holy ground. So the Hasidic rabbis, like, want to get into the words here. Don't come closer here. Remove the shoes from your feet. Especially this, this phrase, remove the shoes from your feet. Okay? Listen to how awesome this is. Nalecha uh, would mean to remove. Okay? And raglecha are your feet. Nalecha now is to unlock. And 
raglecha, regel, means your feet, but regel also means your habits. Unlock your habits. Right? Now, you have to understand, like, at this moment, at this moment, the entire, the entire, like, everything we know about God, basically, is flowing from this moment. Because Moshe is now getting the mission to save the Jewish people from Egypt, which is going to lead to the ten plagues, the splitting of the Red Sea, and the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. It's all starting at this moment. If you unlock yourself from your habits, then at that moment you're open to all of your life and all of reality changing. Okay, now as though this could get better, right? Listen to this. Rav Yitzchak Ginsburg says, and we just checked it before we, we started the talk today, these words, Shel Nalecha Me'al Raglecha, is Gematria 913, which is the Gematria of the word Breshis, which is the first word of the Torah. Out of beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsburg. Remove the shoes from your feet. Unlock yourself from your habits is brishis. Right? Because when you unlock yourself from your habits and you open yourself up to new things, that is brishis. That is the word that sparks all of creation. Because at that point, you right now are ready to become like something brand new. And the world around you becomes new. Because all of a sudden, you're looking at everything in a new way. And you're not sort of like carved into certain rote patterns of how to access the world. My wife heard one time, and I I was always struck by this. She said... um, she heard this bit of advice, drive home different ways all the time. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it rewires your brain somehow. It's one of the cool things about if you use ways. That's like a GPS thing. Sometimes it'll take you like in like all these like counterintuitive ways where you're going east, but first it sends you west. And you're like, that can't be right. But then you go, okay, I'm just going to go with it. And then it gets you around a whole cluster of traffic. In in Hasidus, there's something called the longer, shorter way. Where something actually takes you longer, but then you get to your ultimate goal quicker. Right? The longer, shorter way. So what's our way around big data? Is that we can't allow ourselves to forget the most important thing that everything, everything, everything is founded on. That's a word. Which is that the only thing that exists is God. 
See, I have a favorite story, and I'm sure you've heard it, but I'll tell you again. So when I first got married, we were in uh, New York, and this couple was very kind. They, they, they allowed us to stay in their house. They were old friends of my wife. And they, they were so nice. They gave us a key, and they said, look, just come and go as you like. Don't, don't even bother. Just, just do whatever you like. And that, that Shabbos, they, thank God, have means, and, and they, have, they had a long Shabbos table with lots of guests, and there was just, the table was just delicious foods and, and silver and crystal and everything like this. It was really nice, and the, 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 the person whose house it is the, was sitting at the head of the table, but he was a very quiet person, so he, he didn't say much at all. And I was in a very good mood and lively mood. I had a lot of energy. So I'm talking a lot and I'm telling stories and jokes and teachings and people are interested and they're laughing and everything like this. And it's just like really like just a wonderful meal. And then at the end of the meal, I walk the guests to the door and I thank them for coming. (laughs) And the host is standing next to me, right? And I realized what I had done, like right after I said that, and I was humiliated. I was humiliated. Because here I am, a guest in this person's home, and I'm acting like I'm the host. And then all of a sudden it hit me. All of us are guests in this world. And how many of us are acting like the hosts? It's my life, it's my world, it's my choices, it's my... And if I want to imagine there's a God, because that makes me a better person, and then I serve my imaginary God, who happens to be the God whose name is in all your books also, but really, this is my own private matter. There's nothing other than God. We... we are hardwired even. Let's give ourselves a little bit of an excuse. We're hardwired to think otherwise so that we can arrive at the truth because God wants us to arrive at the truth. But we have to therefore arrive at the truth. <laughs> I, I came up with this visual a while ago. This is my my Ikea view of humanity. (laughs) Basically, we're these unassembled boxes. (laughs) That's how we start off. And our job is to put ourselves together. We have to arrive at something. Right? Which means we have to build, and then we make mistakes, and we put things in the wrong place, and then we start again. I, I did this. This is this is true. I, I I'm not the technical things, and I, I don't I don't have patience, and you know, a lot of areas in my life are stunted because I don't have the patience for things like this, unfortunately. But anyway, I decided. Look, it was a simple bookcase from IKEA. It was like maybe six foot tall. It was a rectangle with a few shelves. 
I get it. I looked at the I, I looked at the instructions. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I will do this. I put it together, and within minutes, it collapsed on itself, and the boards broke. You know, people are like, I get it. You shower a reasonable amount of days out of the week. <laughs> you eat so that you're not like dead. Try not to get so fat that you can't fit into your clothes, right? Go to school, I guess. I get it. If your bookcase will collapse. <laughs> this world is exceedingly complex. <laughs> you will not make it on your intuition alone. You will not. You will not. You need the Torah. The Torah is the user's guide to your life and to this world. It just is. And in this world of big data, that becomes more and more of a chiddush, more and more of a realization. Which means we just have to cling to this idea that the ultimate sort of life raft, if you want to be one of those people that survives the whale turning over in the ocean and throwing everything from what we thought were our foundational places, if you want that life raft, I'm telling you, the life raft thought is nothing exists other than God. In Od Mavada. And Rabbi Freeman said something very interesting. He, Rabbi Katz, Rabbi Shlomo Katz, when he was here, he said, if you needed to boil down the Baal Shem Tov, what the Baal Shem Tov brought to the world, and you needed to boil it down in one st- statement, that's what he brought to the world. In Od Mavada. There is nothing other than God. But then Rabbi Freeman today added to it. He said, well, wait a second. Let's think about that a little bit more. It's true, but let's think about it a little bit more. The Shalah HaKodesh, a hundred years before, was already saying that that in Ode, there's nothing other than God, already means that nothing exists other than God. So that's already before the Shem Tov. And when when the Shalah is bringing that thought, he's bringing it like it was common knowledge. So, so it wasn't his idea. Everybody knew it, and it was Judaism for the longest time. So then what did the Baal Shem Tov do? If his big thing was Ein Od Novado, nothing exists other than God, what was the Baal Shem Tov? Why is the Baal Shem Tov receiving credit? And the answer is, the answer is, because he made it the foundational thought. He said, if you want to survive in this world, work from that thought. Work from there. Hold on to that. In this storming, raging, like, tornado, slash hurricane, slash sharknado, right? Of information, of sensory bombardment. Good morning. If you hold on to that, if you hold on to that, you'll live. That's what it is. 
That's what it is. So, may Hashem bless us. That we should see Him in everything. That we, we should privilege ourselves to unlock ourselves from our habits so that we can live in the dynamism of creation. You know, I just have to tell you another favorite thought. So, probably the greatest thing I learned in, in high school it was in 10th in, in tenth, tenth, tenth grade geometry. I learned that a straight line is actually composed of an infinite series of dots, discrete dots. In other words, the dot is not attached to anything above it or below it. But a straight line gives you the illusion that it's a solid entity, but it's not a solid entity, mathematically speaking. It's a series of infinite dots. So the reason why that's such an important liberating thought on a spiritual level is because, let's say I'm on a diet, and all of a sudden it's like, I'm hungry. I'm just hungry, whatever. So I'm walking toward the freezer because there's a snack in there. And I'm walking toward the freezer, and as I'm walking toward the freezer, I'm saying, you know, I really shouldn't do this. But then part of me says, but you're already walking toward the refrigerator. In other words, you're already in this straight line, which is a solid entity. So you're already trapped in this path, which is a straight line, which is a solid entity. You can't escape that. But if you know the truth, that a line is a series of dots where no dot is connected to the dot in front of it or behind it, you realize, wait, what do you mean I'm trapped? Okay, so I'm halfway there, but I can turn in any direction and go in any direction. I'm free. I'm free. So can you imagine, can we imagine living our lives in this way where every single step I take through my entire life, I'm free. I'm free. I can move in any direction. If we live our lives like that, can I tell you what I promise you you're going to see? You're going to see a bush which is on fire and it's not being consumed by the fire. And you know who that bush is? It's you. (laughs) You're going to see yourself. 